Good morning. It's uh, good to see everybody. I think uh, the TV might be a little bit hard to see, and uh, Kendall was going to go make some more copies of the slides because my admin assistant did not make enough. So he'll have some of those. We'll have plenty uh, for tomorrow morning. Hey, I am. My name is Jason, as Kendall said, and uh, I uh, am from Wilmore, Kentucky, which is home of Asbury University and Asbury Seminary, and. Um, and uh, I did not know last night until last night that Dr. Geyerson had actually moved from Lexington down to Wilmore. Uh, and so that was kind of cool to find out. I will have to say, Dr. Geyerson, a few years ago when I went on sabbatical, took a Sunday for me and, uh, oh, took, yeah, took a, you're okay, took a, sure. Um, he spoke for me a few years ago when I was on sabbatical, and of the six people who spoke for me over those six weeks, he was the one that I had like 50 people say, you have to have Dr. Geyertsen come back. So it's a treat to be with you guys this week to sit under his teaching uh, once or twice a day. Uh, before I moved to Wilmore, uh, I went there for seminary and ended up staying. I'm originally from West Virginia. Uh, most people, you guys do this and write for, or house, you guys do this. In West Virginia, we do this. Uh, because the state sticks out this way, and I'm from right down here near the Virginia state line, just outside the coal fields uh, in West Virginia. My dad, before he became a pastor, worked for about 30 years in a machine shop uh, that serviced uh, uh, equipment in the coal mine. And uh, I was actually a little bit excited last night. I had never heard that those of you from the thumb are called trolls. Is that what I heard last night? Which made me feel good about having grown up all of lower Michigan trolls for having been called uh, hillbillies uh, all my life. So I was uh, was glad to, to hear that, that, hear that. So I won't call anybody that because I just feel uncomfortable with that. But anyway, thumbbillies. Yeah, I can, do, I can go with that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my first time to Michigan was actually in April when I came up here to do the men's retreat. And I recognized a few faces from uh, the men's retreat. Our connection to Bayshore is through, some of you may know, Matt Chisholm, who's the program director here. And Matt came through GCF, the church I pastor in Wilmore while he was there. And Rachel, his wife, did too while I was there uh, at, uh, at uh, going through seminary while I was there. I'm still there while I was going through seminary. But anyway, we're going to be looking at, uh, at Ephesians this week. We just finished um, at, at our church. We started right after Easter and just finished up about 12 weeks. We took one or two breaks in the midst of that, working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, because we in a staff meeting came to the conclusion that the book of Ephesians has a lot to say to the environment that we are living in in today's culture as followers of Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and so we're going to be spending the week uh, looking at that. Uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to uh, read all of chapter one, because I think it's important for us to hear the word read, because I think the Holy Spirit moves in power through the word when it's read aloud. It, do we have a singer here? Anybody who's a singer? You led last night, right? Because every morning after we, when we finally finish reading the scripture for that day, we're going to sing the doxology together as uh, just to thank God for, uh, for the word. So uh, when we finish reading it in just a few minutes, I'll let you lead us in that, because it will be better for you to do that than for me, for sure. So, And for everybody's benefit, I'll turn the mic off while we sing that. So, <laughs> Anyway, uh, before we actually read Ephesians, uh, I want to just mention a, a mentor of mine. I did some doctor of ministry work at Beeson Divinity School, which is at Samford University, all the way down in Alabama, uh, just on the south side of Birmingham. And one of my mentors there, his name's Doug Webster. He's a prof there. And uh, for 14 years before he moved to Birmingham to, to teach at Beeson Divinity School, he pastored the first Presbyterian church of San Diego, California. And uh, one of the things that I remember him saying in, in one of the classes I had with him is that he actually found it easier to be a follower of Jesus in San Diego than he did in Birmingham. And he said, the reason is that in San Diego, we knew who was a follower of Jesus because we looked so different than everyone around us. But in Birmingham, everybody says they're a follower of Jesus, and it makes it difficult to know who really is. And so I just want to start this morning. I, I want you, we're going to do this a few times each, each morning, just with somebody around you, one or two people. I want you just to share with the person next to you what, what do you think are just a couple of the, the, the identity markers that when you're interacting with somebody that say to you, this person really loves Jesus. This person's really following Jesus. I know that they are. So what are, just share with the person next to you a couple of the things that indicate that for you.
This is good because I can tell you guys are not going to have trouble discussing things <laughs> through the week. Uh, I just want to um, I want to make one clarification before uh, before I move on. I use two terms in in my preaching and teaching. I use two terms interchangeably. Uh, oftentimes, sometimes I will I will say Christian, but more often than not these days, I refer to followers of Jesus. And the reason I do that is because you can take just about 80% of us in the United States, if you ask them if you're, they're a Christian, will tell you, yes, I'm a Christian. But they mean they're a Christian not by second birth, but by first birth. It's culturally what they were raised in. It's how they identify themselves culturally. So I have found it helpful over the last few years. Now, I am a Christian. Christian and originally meant little Christ, the little followers of Jesus. Uh, and so I use that term, but oftentimes I use the term follower of Jesus because that indicates somebody who's like really, they're really following Jesus. They want to obey him. They're allegiant to him. They're faithful to him and they're shaping their life around him. So I'll use those terms kind of interchangeably and just want you to know, I, I mean the same thing. Uh, by uh, by both of them. Now, I want to start out by before we read the scripture, just by talking a little bit about uh, about the city of Ephesus. And uh, Ephesus was a city the the scholars tell us of about thirty thousand to fifty thousand people, which seems rather small today by standards. But that would have made it one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire back in the day, at, at thirty to fifty thousand people. Now, what I want you to picture within that thirty to fifty thousand people in the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus would have only been thirty to fifty people, probably. Now, we can't know that for certain, but there is absolutely no evidence that in the first 200 to 300 years of Christianity that, that any church was over more than about 50 people. So I want you to imagine there are these 30 to 50 Jesus followers in the city of Ephesus surrounded by 30 to 50,000 people who think they are absolutely crazy and that they have gone off of uh, off the deep end. Now, one of the things to note uh, about the city of Ephesus is it was what we would call today not just a metropolis, a big city, but it was also cosmopolitan, which means as a city, it had attracted people from all over the Roman Empire, from all over what for them would have pretty much been the known world. And so it's like any of the, the port cities in the ancient Roman Empire, people just came from everywhere. And what you get out of that is just kind of this mishmash of beliefs and mishmashes of culture that you experience here. Probably if you go to certain sections of Detroit in particular, you would definitely experience it in New York City and Chicago. Uh, I have experienced it most intensely in Los Angeles and San Francisco. My wife is from San Francisco. And there's just kind of this mishmash of spiritual, cultural stuff that's going on. And so the city of Ephesus would have present, would have been the same situation. And these 30 to 50 followers of Jesus are in the midst of 30 to 50,000 people who just kind of have a mishmash of cultural beliefs and spirituality. So the, one of the main things to note about the city of Ephesus is that it was the, the site of one of the temples to Artemis. Now, Artemis was the goddess of the hunt. Uh, and she was also the goddess who, if you had children, you thanked, you thanked Artemis for that. But primarily, if you went out on a hunt and you called an animal, when you came back, you might take the hide of the animal or something from your house to the temple of Artemis, and you would offer it to Artemis. The temple to Artemis was one of what they call the seven wonders of the ancient world. How many of you have seen a picture of the Parthenon from Athens? The temple to Artemis was, was, was likely two times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was just a monumental, massive building in the center of the ancient city where everybody went, and I mean everybody went, to worship uh, the goddess Artemis. They would... Um, 
bake some of the things they would do, and they would lay birthing clothes at her altars during some of the festivals. They would bake honey cakes in the shapes of deer or stags especially, and they would take them and place them uh, at her altar. Uh, after a hunt, if they'd had a really successful hunt, they would take their bows and arrows and lay their bows and arrows in homage to the goddess Artemis. And she was served by these beautiful young girls who were made priestesses of her temple. Okay, And oftentimes as priestesses of her temple, they would have been there and would have been available for, for what is called temple prostitution as another way to honor the goddess Artemis. So it would have been an honor, believe it or not, in ancient Ephesus for you to give up your daughter to serve as one of these priestesses and temple prostitutes in the, in the, in the, in the, the, the temple to the goddess Artemis. Now, another thing to note about um, uh, ancient Ephesus is uh, what the marketplace would have been like, okay? You have sites in all of the cities or towns where you're from, right, where they're kind of the collection point. In Wilmore, where I'm from, the collection point is our IGA, our little grocery store, the Subway, uh, the, the little coffee roastery, and the Dollar General. And you can pretty much run into anybody if you're right around that little square. Well, imagine that in much larger size in Ephesus, and they call these marketplaces the Agora, and in the slides, if you can see it on the TV, there's a picture actually of the ruins from the Ephesian Agora. And you imagine that full of people. And one of the things that would have been going on, everybody had to go to the marketplace, but there would have been philosophers. Now, when I say the word philosopher to you, we think of somebody in a posh office in a university or a college reading and doing work. That is not how the philosophers in the first century operated. They, they came up with their philosophies and they went out to the markets and they found places in the markets, and they taught their philosophy in the markets. I always tell people the best way to imagine this is if you ever watched an episode of, of Oprah's old show or if you watch anything on her, her, her cable network, when she brings on the self-help gurus and the philosophers, it would have been the same thing back in the marketplace. So when you went through the marketplace, these people from the different philosophical schools would have been teaching their philosophical ways and what they believed about how you gain contentment and true happiness in life. And so you would have just been surrounded by that. Now, one of the other features of ancient Roman cities, and this would have been, a, this was a big deal in all of them, is that there were, were bathhouses. And that's a picture of the, one of the ruins of one of the ancient bathhouses. By the way, I'm moving over here to keep my bald head out of the sun because that doesn't work well for me uh, after a while. Um, the bathhouses were for taking baths in, but they also became scenes of illicit sexual activity. So when you went to the bathhouse, the expectation was that you would be bathed, but you would also have a sexual encounter with somebody, whether you knew them or not. And as was customary in Roman culture, which is becoming more customary in our culture today, those were often heterosexual and homosexual sexual encounters that would just openly take place in the bathhouse. And that was acceptable. Now, they would also have these dinner parties. And these dinner parties, the sort of same, it was a big deal to have a dinner party. Like if you invite somebody over to your house, like when we sometimes have our church worships on Saturday evening due to circumstances I don't have time to discuss right now, but we're enjoying that because a lot of us are then taking Sundays to invite other people from in our faith family to come to our houses and, and eat. And we always prepare a nice meal. We get the house clean. There's dessert. We get a pot of coffee brewing after everybody finishes. And then we sit around and talk, which is pretty much what you do if you invite somebody to your house. Back then, if you invited somebody to your house, the point was to start out serving a lot of wine as soon as people got there, so that by the time you got to a certain point in the evening, everybody was drunk, so that you could then carry on however you wanted to carry on, say whatever you wanted to say, do whatever you wanted to do, especially sexually with whoever was at the party, and then you could excuse yourself because it was the wine's fault. So it didn't have any reflection upon you morally or philosophically according to the stance you took in life. And so it was common for that to be going on. They also did theater. And this is really cool. Ephesus has one of the largest uh, remains of a theater in the ancient Roman world. It was humongous, seated at maybe fifteen to 20,000 people. So it was one of the largest. And you would go, and you guys, if you remember from high school, right, some of you from college, you had to read the classics, Odysseus and, and Homer and all that kind of stuff, right? So they had plays that were based on that kind of stuff, but they also, the same way we do today, they had stuff that went on in the theater that we would consider X-rated today, 
or NC-17, or however they rate it these days, TVMA, uh, as they say. So those things, and it just would have been broadly acceptable for anybody to go in and watch those sorts of things. So all of that is going on. Now, one other thing before we dig into this that's really, two other things that are really important before we dig into the letter itself. Number one, socioeconomics. We, as followers of Jesus have been taught that our lives are filtered down, right? So if I have more than I need, I believe as a follower of Jesus that I give out of my abundance to those beneath me who have less than I have. Rome operated entirely different from that. There was none of that that existed at all in the common ordinary thought in Roman society. Now, that's even different than today because most people today in America, even if they don't go to church, even if they don't know Jesus, have a sense that you give to those who are less fortunate. They don't know that that comes out of the Christian tradition of the nation and the Christian tradition of the, of the West, that you actually do it. Because in the Roman world, you only gave up. And it only made sense to give up because only the people who were above you could return something to you of greater return than what you had given to them. Does that make sense? So it was called a culture of reciprocity. And that means that you only gave to somebody who could return to you something greater than you had given to them. And this meant if you were poor, if you were a hardworking person trying to sell your wares in the market, if you were a servant in a house, nobody gave stuff to you. It was your job to give stuff to them in the hopes that they would give something to you in return. If you want a slide, I think they're passing out. If you just raise your hand up and they'll get one of those to you. So it's important to remember that and to remember how different that is than the way you and I have been raised to believe as followers of Jesus and how we have been taught because nothing turned down in giving. Everything went up. Okay. Another thing is I want to just say a word about ethnicity and slavery. Ephesus, as I mentioned, was cosmopolitan. So it was a multi-ethnic city. Okay, just like if you go to Detroit, if you go to Chicago, they are multi-ethnic. You come into contact with people from all sorts of different ethnicities and skin colors. Um, and the one thing that all of these people would have had in common, no matter where they were from, is that they all participated in the same sort of spirituality. So they would have gone and paid, they would have gone and paid homage to Artemis. They would have gone and paid homage to the emperors because the emperors declared them, each emperor declared himself to be the son of a god because it was believed the emperor before him had been a god. And so everybody would have been going to do that no matter where they were from. The important thing about this is that put Jews and Christians on the outs. Because everybody was, was polytheistic. You go and you worship whatever gods you have to worship. And those cantankerous Jews said, we can't do that. We won't do that. We won't go into your shrine to the emperor. We won't go into your temple to Artemis. And they were ostracized from culture because of that. And the same thing happened with Christians because Christians were initially considered a sect of Judaism. And Christians were saying the same thing. We won't go into that temple. We won't go into that shrine. And so you can take a city like Ephesus, and it didn't matter what skin color you were, you would have been treated relatively the same. It's different than it is today in many places. But if you were a Jew or Christian, didn't matter what color Jew or Christian you were, you were going to be treated differently because you didn't participate in this, this, this spirituality of the culture at large, where you go and worship Artemis, I'll go and worship Athena, you go and worship Zeus, you go and, and pay your homage to the emperor. Okay. One final thing, and we're going to talk about this more on the last day. Family life in Roman culture was very different than it is today. Family life in Roman culture was what we call patriarchal. And that means that everything in Roman culture was structured in service of the man. All right. Men were in charge of the culture and men structured the whole culture to stay in charge. And so they developed these things called household codes, which we'll talk about on Friday because Paul creates a pretty countercultural one of his own at the, toward the end of Ephesians. And so everything was, was, was turned toward the male. So if you read one of these household codes, all it would, all it would lay out on the male in the household was the, the chief father figure, you have to provide for your family and keep the order amongst your family. Then there would be humongous sections written for how the wife treated her husband humongous sections for how the children were supposed to treat her husband and humongous sections for how the slaves and the servants in the house were to treat the husband. 
And so the family revolved entirely not around a loving, serving father figure, but around this ruling, domineering father figure who put himself at the pinnacle of the family and the whole family was turned in service to him. Okay? It's an important thing to remember as we, we go through this. So that means I want you to have this in mind as we go through Ephesians this week. 30 to 50 followers of Jesus. And you can sit here right now and tell already how different following Jesus is from what the other 30 to 50,000 people in Ephesus were doing. And so there are 30 to 50 followers of Jesus in Ephesus who are all trying to live differently than the way they lived before they became followers of Jesus, while everybody else around them, you know, 40,970 other people or however many, are doing it the way they used to do it. And, and this, this, there's a writer named James Brian Smith who wrote a great book called The Good and Beautiful Community. And in this book, he's trying to capture what it would have been like to be in one of these churches early on. And this is what he writes, and I think I have this in the slides. Yeah. Imagine you are Jewish, taught from birth that you are chosen by God and that the Gentiles are defiled. That's everybody who's not a Jew. And having to join hands with a Greek for prayer. That would have happened if you were a Christian. If you'd become a follower, it didn't happen if you stayed Jewish. But if you were in that church, you might be a Jew who's having to hold hands with a Greek. Or imagine you're a slaveholder, a member of the elite class, and reaching out to receive a piece of communion bread from a slave. That happened in the church. It would have happened nowhere else in the culture. Imagine you're a first century man raised with the notion that women are inferior and looking across the room at a woman who, by her graciousness, has paid for the home your church is meeting in. And this is, this is a picture of how countercultural that little community in Ephesus was to everything that was going on around them. And so I want you just to imagine this finally. You're on your way to church on a Sunday morning, and they would have gone to church early on Sunday morning. There was no Sabbath day in Roman culture. There was no day off of work. And so if you were a follower of Jesus on Sunday morning, you were getting up before the sun came up to go to a, probably a secret location in a house, sometimes in a cave if they were being persecuted. And on your way to church, you're passing by shrines and temples that everybody else is going into to worship the emperor and the gods and goddesses. You're hearing teachers and philosophers spew stuff that runs exactly counter to what you've been taught and are learning to believe about Jesus. You're passing by bathhouses that you used to go into to, to enjoy yourself illicit sexually encounters so that you can go and worship this Jewish carpenter who's supposedly raised from the dead named Jesus. You're passing by homes where people are going into dinner parties and you can hear them carrying on and having what they describe as a good time while you're going to this little home to worship Jesus, a Jewish carpenter who was supposedly raised from the dead. And, and, and none of this was foreign to them. They had all lived this life before they became followers of Jesus. But then Jesus happened and they're now doing something different and they feel the pressure they feel the pressure of leaving it all. And so just a few things that this means for our study of Paul's letter. Being the church in Ephesus, it meant that there was a real temptation to walk away from Jesus every day. Every day, the temptation would have been real for these followers of Jesus to say, this is nuts. I can't handle the pressure of this anymore. I'm not doing it anymore because of what was going on around them. A second thing this meant for them is that the church was the only witness to Jesus and the kingdom of God. That little church of 30 to 50 people, if, if anybody in Ephesus was going to hear about Jesus, there was only one way they were going to learn about him. And it was going to be from that little group of 30 to 50 people who had become his followers. Then a third thing this means for our study of the book of Ephesus is that the unity of the church is a crucial witness of Jesus and the kingdom of God to the world. And that's really important for where we are in the United States right now because I could have created a file folder this thick in my office over the last year of stories of churches that split in the turmoil in the United States. And when churches split, now there are some legitimate reasons for that to happen, but when churches split over reasons that are not tied directly to our following in Jesus and our orthodox creeds in Jesus, the Apostles' Creed, for example, that defiles the church's witness to the world. It just does, because the church is presenting a picture, as we're going to see in a few minutes, the church is presenting a picture to the world of what is possible amongst the people who follow Jesus. And so the church plays this important, this little group of 30 to 50 people, this is so hard for me to get my mind wrapped around, they are at the center of God's plan for the city of Ephesus. 
Not all the philosophers in the marketplace, not all the actors and actors, and they didn't have actresses in the day, but all of the actors in the theater, not the ruling class in their, their buildings, they're not at the center of God's plan. The center of God's plan is this group of 30 to 50 Jews and Gentiles, males and females, slave and free, who are following Jesus. And it's almost as if, guys, God has staked everything on them. The eternity of the city of Ephesus and the people who live there is staked on these 30 to 50 people who have become followers of Jesus. And then, finally, it means that the church lives in the culture as a witness to another king and kingdom. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but I just think this is a problem. My sister lives just south of Lynchburg, Virginia, Liberty University. Back in the day, Jerry Falwell wanted to create a whole section of Lynchburg that would be only for Christians, only for churches. It was going to be a city within the city. That's fundamentally not how God created churches. Because churches exist for the sake of the cities and the communities they're in. Not a one of us here can withdraw from the culture we live in. We are in the culture as salt and as light. And so God doesn't want these, these 30 to 50 Christians in Ephesus to pull out, to go out to the outskirts and create a compound. He wants them in the city. He wants them passing through the Agora. He wants them having conversations with people about Jesus. He wants their way of life to look different than the way everybody else is living so that they can give witness to Jesus. Now, I'm going to read chapter 1. You know, we may not get finished with this book by the end of the week, but we'll make a stab at it. So so we're going to read, and I'm going to read from the NIV. I'm using the new, uh, the new American Standard Bible. They just came out with a new version, which I'm using in my devotional reading, which is really good. But the NIV tends to be most common these days, so we're going to read from the NIV. And we get to the end of chapter 1, at the end of verse 23. Uh, You will lead us, if you don't mind, what's your name? Debbie, in the doxology. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Get that, every name that is invoked. Think about how many other names are being invoked in the city of Ephesus every day. 
not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, let's dig in. And uh, let's start just with the introduction to the letter. There was a common way of writing letters. There were lots of letters written in the ancient Roman world in the first century. There was a common way that you began every letter. And it's slightly different than the way you and I begin a letter. I mean, if anybody sits down and writes a paper letter these days, right? Uh, I, I like to sit down and write paper letters to folks who visited our church because it stands out when you get a handwritten letter in the mail uh, these days in a way that it, it, it didn't. But when you and I start a letter, we typically will start the letter something like this. Dear Matthew, now is the time for all good men to come, well, you might not write this, to come to the aid of their country. The quick red fox jumps over the lazy brown dog. Sincerely, Jason. Okay? Now, this letter format leaves a lot open to question. Who is Matthew? Who is Jason? Why is Matthew writing Jason? Or why is Jason writing Matthew? Who is Matthew that he would want to read what Jason writes to him? Our letters leave a lot open to, who, to who's doing what. And so Roman letters, ancient Roman letters did something similar. They would have, a typical ancient Roman letter would have been like this. I, Paul, to you Ephesians. There wouldn't have necessarily been a closing like we do. It would have all been wrapped up there. I, Paul, to you Ephesians. Now is the time for all good men, so on and so on. Now, if that was the way Paul had started any of his letters, it would likewise leave a lot up to interpretation, Right? Who's Paul? Who are the Ephesians? Why is Paul writing to the Ephesians? Why should the Ephesians care what, what, what Paul thinks or why he's writing them? So Paul did something very, very different in all of his letters than everybody else did in their letters. He added more information always at the beginning of his letter to clarify exactly who he was and who he understood himself to be and exactly who he was writing to and who he believed them to be. And so this is how Paul begins this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And there's two important things to note there. Paul is telling us who he is in writing to the Ephesians. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. We're going to talk a little bit more about this hopefully in just a few minutes, why Paul can call himself an apostle, one who has been sent by Christ Jesus. And he says it's by the will of God. Paul's like, I didn't wake up one morning and decide that I was going to be sent by God to tell people about Jesus. No, I have been sent by God to tell people about Jesus by the will of God. God made this happen. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then notice how he describes the, the people in Ephesus. To God's holy people is how the NIV puts it. The word in the Greek that gets translated God's holy people is best translated saints. It's the word that means saints. So he's calling these 30 to 50 people in the city of Ephesus, surrounded by all of these thousands of other people, you are God's people. None of these other people are really God's people, but you, you are God's people, and you are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's important because he's not going to just talk about God. He's going to talk about God in Jesus. And so you are faithful in Christ Jesus. And what he means by that is that the reason you are faithful, it's not about the faith you've put in Jesus. He's saying you are faithful in Christ Jesus in the sense that it is Jesus who has come into you who is making you faithful. This is going to be all through the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that we do not do these things apart from the empowerment of Christ and the Holy Spirit. So it's sort of like, you know, the president, any plane the president gets on, that plane becomes called Air Force One. And you could put the president on a Cessna in, in, the, in a little air, regional airport here, and that Cessna, for the duration of the time the president's on it, gets the call designation Air Force One. And it's the same thing sort of that Paul is saying here about Jesus. When you have Jesus in you, you become faithful. 
You are not faithful on your own, but when Jesus becomes in you, it comes into you, who you become is a faithful one of Jesus. And so he begins the letter in a significantly different way. And think about how radical this would have been for these people in the city of Ephesus, these 30 to 50 people surrounded by these tens of thousands of other people who are not following Jesus. And Paul is saying, you used to define yourself in so many ways. You defined yourself as a slave. You defined yourself as free. You defined yourself as being from Ethiopia. You defined yourself as being from Tuscany. You defined yourself as being from Jerusalem. You defined yourself as a female. You defined yourself as a male. And Paul, in the very opening to his letter, is saying none of that. None of that is as important as your identity markers as the holy people of God, as the saints of God and those who are faithful in Jesus Christ. This provides us a good point to think about our identity markers as Americans. Because what we have seen over, I think, the last four to 12 years in the United States is that we are encouraged to take on a good many identity markers that actually compete with our identity in Christ. And our identity is the holy people of God. So what I want to give you just a second to think about, and if you've got somebody next to you that you want to share this with, is what is one, what is one identity marker that for you often comes to mind before you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus? Could be your career, could be political involvement, could be the town you're from. But what is an identity marker for you that just as you think about it competes with you saying to someone, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm one who is faithful in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to give you about 60 seconds to think about that and share that with somebody next to you. All right, that's about 60 seconds. I will uh, just uh, just to, to share it, since I just asked you to confess something to somebody next to you, I'll just say to all of you that one of the things that competes with me, with my first identity marker being as one who is faithful in Jesus Christ, and it's actually a good thing, but it competes with it in a negative way, is being a pastor. You know, I can very easily think I'm a pastor before I have a knee-jerk reaction to remember that I'm actually first and foremost faithful in Jesus. And so we can think of lots of things that are maybe negative that compete with our identity in Jesus, but there can also be positive aspects of us that really compete and battle with our first and foremost identity in Christ. Now, I want to look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Now, I don't know if you noticed, I started to run out of breath while I was reading this portion of the letter. Our English translations do us a favor in breaking these verses typically up into three to four sentences. In the Greek, Paul wrote the second longest sentence in the Bible right here. Okay? There's no punctuation in it of any kind. It starts and goes until he gets finished. And this is great because what it is is basically a doxology. Paul's bursting out with this, his beginning letter, it's just this burst of praise. Like we sang the doc, what we call the doxology. He's doing that here. Now, Paul has two goals in the initial section of this letter. The first one is he wants to locate the Ephesian Christians within the story of God. God is telling a story is one way to think about the way history is working out. 
The story started, as our scriptures tell us, in an, in an Edenic garden. It involves a whole history of human sin and humans trying to be faithful to God without much success. It involves Jesus Christ. It then involves what we call the church age. And Paul believes that it's, this story is culminating in something. It is going somewhere. And so what he's trying to do here is help this little Ephesian community of 30, 50 people. It's like, he's saying, I want you to understand where you fit in this story. And not only is he saying, I want you to understand where you fit in this story, but I want you to know where it's going, how this is all going to end. And then his second goal is to offer the thesis that will guide the rest of the letter. Almost all of Paul's, you guys remember writing papers in school? I vaguely do too. And what were you taught early on? I was actually taught this, I think, sometime in in elementary school. You have to have a topic. You have to have a guiding theme. It can be hard to discern, but in every letter Paul wrote, there's usually a statement early on that tells you what the letter is going to be about, what he's really wanting to deal with. So if you look at Romans, which you don't have to, but Romans 1, 14, and 15 is the theme statement for that whole letter. It's what Paul is basically going to talk about. And so in this section, we're going to find Paul's theme statement for the whole letter. And this theme is going to come back throughout our study through the whole week. Because we're going to see how this impacts the way Paul is writing the letter and structuring the letter all the way through. The other thing that Paul wants to do is, um, did I just do that one? There we go. So I mentioned this is a doxology. So it's, we know, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. This is a declaration of praise from Paul. Um, it's hailing God's glory. Uh, and doxologies, he didn't sing this one, but doxologies are often given in a chant or a song. And doxa just simply means praise in Greek. So when you say doxology, it's just ology is words. Doxa is praise, just praise words, which is what Paul is doing here. Now, I... Um, Paul starts out by saying, he, this is the theme statement. This is the thesis of the letter in verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to sum up all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, remember, this comes in the middle of a long, this comes at the center of a long run on sentence. So it's helpful for us to see the theme of the letter here if we kind of highlight two sections of it. So I've got these in red. So let me skip the middle section and just read this statement because this is what the whole letter is about. He made known to us the mystery of his will to sum up all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's the theme of this, this letter, that all of history is moving toward a time when everything will be summed up or united under the rule and authority of Jesus. And the whole rest of the letter is going to flow out of this thesis statement because Paul's going to show us a lot about the unity of the church, the unity of the Christian family, the unity of of working relationships between Christians because it's all bearing out this theme to sum up all things in heaven and on earth. I have here some pictures of Haiti. My wife uh, has rheumatoid arthritis. She's actually back over here, but I won't ask her to. Well, she did wave. So So we once a week, we have a a lady from the next town over who is from Haiti. Her name is Elsie. And Elsie comes on Monday and helps Kira clean our house because some of that's really difficult for her. And I think Elsie's closing in on 70 years old, and we're grateful Kira's parents have been well invested, and so they help us pay for that. It's really helpful to her, but uh, Elsie speaks very little English. She is much more familiar with, uh, familiar with Haitian Creole. Uh, she, of course, is Roman Catholic, which is the predominant faith that and voodoo, voodooism uh, in Haiti. Uh, and uh, Elsie, sometimes she's so Roman Catholic that she knows I'm a pastor. And sometimes when I go to pick her up, because she doesn't drive, and when I get in the car, she usually says, oh, good morning, Fada. Good morning, Father. And then she catches up and goes, oh, no, good morning, Pass. Good morning, Pass, and corrects herself. But most of my Monday mornings with Haiti, uh, with Elsie, one of the questions that comes up is what's going on in Haiti? And I always ask her how her family is doing, and she tells me how her family is doing here, and then she tells me how her family in Haiti is doing. And the family in Haiti is always worse than the family that's managed to come to the United States. You may have seen in the news, Haiti's been in their turmoil. They've been in turmoil forever. It just so happens their most recent turmoil actually finally made headlines. Um, in the the rest of the world. 
you know, and I, I call, Elsie gets in the car one morning, I ask her how her daughter's doing, and she says, oh, my daughter cut her hand really bad, but there's no doctor who can take care of it. I'm, I'm worried about it. what's going to happen to her hand. She's got it bandaged up, but I, I don't know what's going to happen. She'll often tell me when she gets in the car, oh, my grandchildren could not go to school. Fighting, fighting, fighting. People crazy, people crazy, she tells me all the time. There's fighting all over Port-au-Prince, all the time. Uh, and she'll oftentimes tell me they, they were in the house, doors closed, windows closed, couldn't, couldn't go out of the house. Uh, my wife and I have been on a bit of a weight loss trek since the beginning of the year, and we were getting rid of a lot of clothes, and I was getting ready to take them to the Goodwill, and Elsie said, oh, can I have those? Bags and bags and bags of clothes that she was going to send back to Haiti. And we said, well, Haiti, did, Elsie, did they not have clothes? And no, all the factories are closed. All they get is what we send. And uh, then most recently, you know, their president was assassinated. And most Haitians are no fans of their president, but they're still not glad that he was assassinated because they had a sense this throws us into even more turmoil. And oftentimes when, when Elsie will tell me this, the, I, we go through these routines every Monday morning, and um, it often makes me think of a Lego set. Because I have an eight-year-old who, by the way, after being here for a few hours yesterday, told my wife that we need to now come back every year. So, um, <laughs> and... Uh, um, yeah, exactly. And so he'll buy these, you know, and some of these Lego sets now have like 10,000 pieces. I'm not kidding if you've got the money to pay for them. But he'll get the small one. He'll spread them all out on the dining room table, the kitchen table. And I have an immediate panic response for all of these pieces laying on the table because it overwhelms me to think about taking that instruction book and putting these things back together. And I bring all of this up because what Paul is saying in that verse is that the world right now, American culture to us right now, and I know you guys have experienced this in Michigan because you guys are on the news a lot. <laughs> Especially over the last year to year and a half, you've been on the news a lot for how divided you are as a, pe as, as a people in this state about lots of things. And, and what, what, what Paul is saying here is like, you will experience the world oftentimes the way Elsie does. It's just a bunch of disparate Lego, broken up Lego pieces strewn all over the table. But guys, one day, one day, Jesus is uniting it all. One day, and I love the way Paul puts this. In the NIV, they say uniting, but that's not the great way. That's not the best way to say it. The NASB says this better. It says summing it up because it's a math term in Greek. One day, Jesus will sum it all up, and it will be the way it is supposed to be. So you think about a simple equation, 3 plus 3 plus 6 equals 12, and that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to take the Christians that are threes, the Christians that are six, these things that are ones, these things that are twos. He's going to add them up and finally bring them all to exactly what they're supposed to be. And that's what will happen. It will all be summed up under Jesus. And then sometimes equations get more complicated. You see these on Facebook all the time where they say to work this out because most people have forgotten that you have to do the multiplication first. And so the world seems like a really, really complicated equation. But it's not an equation that's above Jesus. Jesus is still going to be able to take all the mess that we sometimes see going on in the world around us, and eventually it will all be summed up. Now, the summing up in Jesus doesn't mean that everything's getting added up. It means that a lot of evil's getting minus out of the equation. But it will all be summed up so that everything is eventually what it is supposed to be. And so Paul writes about this in Ephesians 1 through 9. We see this in Ephesians 15, 20 through 28. That's Paul's great section on the resurrection of the body. It's important to note that we as followers of Jesus have become so focused on going to heaven, which I do believe happens to us in some form or fashion when we die, that we actually forget that the great hope of the Christian faith is resurrection life being raised from the dead. And then Paul, or not Paul, but John in Revelation 21 and 22 writes these beautiful descriptions of the earth restored to its Edenic state. The city of God coming down to earth and the earth being made new. And it's this picture of everything being summed up. Everything summed up in Jesus. And so Paul says, guys, he's saying to the Ephesians in that thesis, that's the story. That's the story you and I are living in. That's what's going on. God's brought you in on the story. Now, this brings us just to a little bit of outline. Now that we've done the thesis, I want to talk just a little bit about the outline, okay? So in chapter 1, 1, 1 through 2, 9, Paul is talking about the church and the story of God, okay? How the church fits into the story. 
Then in 2, 10 through 3, 13, he's talking about what I'm going to call the mysterious unity of the church. Paul uses the word mystery a lot in this letter. Okay. Then chapters 3, 14 through 21 are a prayer for the church's unity. And then in 4, 1 through 5, 19, he's going to go into all kinds of detail about how you and I, in a very practical way, have to be conscious and actively living out the unity or the summing up of things as they will be in the future. Because you and I are witnesses to what Jesus will do. As the church now, we are, witness, we are witnessing to the world of what Jesus will do when he comes again. So they should be able to look at your church. The world should be able to look at your church and see a beautiful picture of the eventual summing up of all things in Jesus. Now that sounds grand, right? I look at my church sometimes and go, wow, we, we don't quite get there, but it's what we're here to do. And that's also where he's, and then we're going to get how he's going to talk very practically about unity and marriage, family and work. We'll spend most of our time talking about marriage when we talk about that. And then finally, he's going to talk about how you get fitted in the armor of God for unity. Now, let me just say briefly, this passage 1, 3 through 14, we doing okay? Okay. 1, 3 through 14 breaks into two halves around this thesis statement. And so the first half is trying to answer for the Ephesians how they got into this story. So how did you get in as a fault? How did you get into this story where all things are eventually going to be summed up in Jesus? And Paul, Paul gets it. You can just hear his excitement when you read this out loud, this long run on sentence. So this is Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. He says, here's how you got in on the story, guys. Here's how you 30 to 50 people got in on all this that God is doing. Well, you were chosen by God to be lavished by grace and love in Jesus unto redemption. If you read that section, notice how much he uses phrases like rich, grace, lavish, poured out. It's all in there. So how did you get in on this story? How did you get in on this story that's going to eventually lead to the summing up of all things in Jesus at the end of this age? You got into it by the grace of God. He says over and over and over again, you were chosen, you were predestined. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have any free will. But for Paul, he's saying, man, you got to think Paul is thinking about Acts chapter 9 right here, right? Like Paul never forgot what happened to him in Acts chapter 9. How did he get in on the Jesus thing? Because Jesus, as the great light shone upon him and knocked him to his knees and called him onto a different path. And so for Paul, how do you get in on the story of what God is doing in human history? It's Jesus. The grace of God in Jesus. Or as you'll hear me say several times this week, God in Jesus Christ. You see, you and I as followers of Jesus have to learn something for navigating the culture that we live in. We have to stop talking about God because God, for most people around us, is just an amorphous spiritual being. But God has presented himself to us in Jesus. We are not people who just talk about God. We are people who talk about God in Jesus. And so Jesus ought to be on our tongues and our lips probably a lot more than he is. And you can watch this. When you talk about God to somebody, they'll, be, they'll kind of come right in with you. But you talk about Jesus, and all of a sudden, the power of the name pushes them back a little bit. Don't know what to do with that. Because it's what Dr. Geyerton was talking about last night. He's destined for the rising and the falling of many. He's dividing the waters. So we talk about, that was just a little aside. So where we are in the story of God. So he tells them in the first half before the thesis how they got into it. Now he's going to tell them where they are in the story currently, okay, in the situation in which they're living. This is verses 11 through 14. He says, well, what you're doing right now, and he uses this phrase, you're living to the praise of his glory. I, I was really convicted yesterday in my devotional reading about a phrase from Luke <laughs> where Jesus basically says, hey, when people come to you, do they get grapes or thistles? What do they get? They get figs or thistles. Do they get grapes or briars? That's how he says it. And it all has to do with this idea of living to the praise of Jesus' glory. That's, that's where we are in the story right now. You and I have no idea when Christ will come again. We have no idea. But what we're to busy ourselves doing is living for the praise of his glory giving the world figs instead of thistles, grapes instead of briars. That's where we are in the story. And how do we do this? Well, we do it in what he says in the sealing power of the Holy Spirit as God continues to work out his will. In the ancient world, when you closed up a letter, it would have been a scroll. You put a, you put a drop of wax on it, and then you put a seal on it. 
And that guaranteed that this letter belonged to that person was being delivered to that destination and had been undisturbed. And when Paul says that the Holy Spirit is a seal like that, he says, God has given you the Holy Spirit to sustain you in this life of faith. It is the seal that says you will get from right now to the day of the great summation. It's the guarantee that that's where you're going. And so that's where you are in the story, living to the praise of his glory and the sealing power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's going to go on in the next section to use this phrase about the enlightened church. Okay, And there are a few things I want to say just about uh, this next section. And he's going to, in verse 18, say this. By the way, he's moving here from doxology. Verses 3 through 14 is incredible doxology. Then he's moving into prayer. Okay, so now he's going to pray for this church. And he begins by saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Okay, but what does he want them to be enlightened about? Well, the first thing that he wants them to be enlightened about is what they are in God's reflection. And so he says this in verse 18, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In other words, for them to be enlightened, for this Ephesian group to be enlightened, they have to be able to see themselves as God sees them. To be enlightened as a church, they have to see themselves the way God sees them as a church. Now, you and I have trouble oftentimes seeing our churches the way God sees them. I, I told my church, I, my wife and I are both preacher's kids. We have seen ugly in the church. We have experienced ugly in the church. I have literally seen, the, the, literally in one church, the battles over carpet color. And whether or not the pews would, the back of the pews would be padded in addition to the, the, the seat of the pew. Seriously, major arguments over that. I remember in that same church, they refused to deliver food boxes to an apartment across the street because they were just a bunch of druggies. You know, I, we have seen, and you and I know the same thing. We can look, in, look at our churches and we can see the hints of, boy, we don't always live for the praise of Jesus' glory. And what Paul is saying is if you focus on all of that stuff too much, you will lose sight of actually who your church is and what your church is in the reflection of God. And notice here that Paul, in this section, he in, in, in just the first chapter, I believe it is, up through verse this verse, he's going to mention the, the Father 17 times, the Son 19 times, and the Holy Spirit four times. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teach us that God in his inner being is love. He is love. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, and the Holy Spirit being produced from the love of the Father and the Son overflowing to us. And so the church must, must always, even, even when your church seems ugly, you have to see your church as the object of the love of God. That the whole of God's being is pouring himself out in love for your church. For your local church, you may think your local church is kind of piddly. You may think your local church is dying. You may think your local church has no real witness in the world. And Paul would say, before you do that, I want your eyes to be enlightened to how the Father feels about your church. And how he sees your church being. Because in the core of his being, he loves your church. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't have chosen you and lavished you in his grace in Jesus Christ to be where you are at this point in time. He, just, he wouldn't have done it. And the second thing about this enlightening is not only seeing the church in the love of God, but it's seeing the church as God's glorious inheritance. And he gets to this also in verse 18. And this is an interesting turn of uh, a phrase. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Now, that last bit's a really interesting turn of phrase because typically when Paul talks about inheritance, he's talking about your inheritance on the day of the great summation. He's talking about what God is going to give you when Christ comes again. But here he's talking about God's inheritance. And he says... What are the riches of his inheritance in who? In the saints, in the church. In other words, guys, God is waiting for bated breath for the fullness of time when Christ comes again so that he can inherit you. That's what he's longing for. It's the riches of his inheritance in you, in the community, in your local church. 
God is waiting for you. He's waiting for the day. He's looking forward to inheriting you. That's what he wants. And he's looking forward to it. Finally, he wants the church to also be enlightened to the church's power. And he gets at this in the next bit. This is not... Let me finish this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may see his incomparably great power. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. So how did Jesus raise from the dead? Paul says Jesus raised from the dead in the full power of God. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that resides in your local faith family, that resides in your local church. I wish more churches understood this. The resurrection power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, resides in this little Ephesian church. You imagine what a, what a massive message that was for them? 30 to 50 piddling little people and 50,000 people not following Jesus? And Paul is saying, hey, if the, if the world around you wants to see what the power of God looks like, they don't go to the theater. They don't go to the Agora. They need to come to one of your little worship gatherings if they want to see what God is up to in the world. They want to see the resurrection power of Jesus at work in the world. I just want to close with Acts chapter 4. And I don't have slides for this, so if you've got your Bible, you may want to turn to Acts chapter 4. Or as we say these days, you may want to scroll to Acts chapter 4. So I just want to walk through this chapter because this is, this is a church that experienced a piddling little church in a lot of trouble, under threat, in a culture that didn't want them. And they experienced the resurrection power of Jesus right in their midst. And so it begins with Peter and John going, they end up before the Sanhedrin because they've healed a guy. You remember this story? Uh, they're walking along and this guy keeps asking them for healing. And finally, it's almost as if uh, Peter gets perturbed and he says, fine. I don't have, he doesn't ask for healing, he asks for money. And Peter finally turns and says, fine, I don't have money. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, you get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walk. And all heaven breaks loose in the temple. But the problem is that the leaders and rulers in the temple don't want that kind of heaven breaking loose. They don't want this Jesus stuff breaking loose in the temple. So this gets Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, which is like the Congress of Israel. Okay? So they end up before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin threatens them and says they really want to put them to death. But they're not so keen on doing that because the same reason they're looking back on the whole Jesus experience. And I think they're probably thinking, we tried putting Jesus to death to put an end to Jesus, and we actually only made the Jesus situation worse by doing that. So they're kind of hesitant to, 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 to like just crucify them and do away with them. So they, they, they're like, it's like when, it's almost like when one of your kids says, if you don't do this for me, this is what I'm going to do to you. Or maybe you do that to your kids. And so the Sanhedrin says to Peter and John, if you keep talking about Jesus, we're going to throw you in jail. Now, jail was not pleasant at the time. We'll talk about this later when we talk about how Paul was in jail when he wrote this letter. You were either under house arrest or you were in a prison cell, and they did not provide you food, clothing, or water at all. No TVs, no newspapers, no libraries, no training classes. Not any at all. Okay? And so it was rough to be in jail, and so they don't want to go to jail. And so they then go back, they get, they're, they're turned loose and they go back to the believers and there's the believers, this small group of believers who are gathered in this particular place. There would have been others in Jerusalem because there were like 5,000 by the end of the whole Pentecost event, right? This small group of believers and they're like, oh, this is what's happened. And the believers have a, they don't freak out. And it's almost as if they say, instead, we need the resurrection power of Jesus in the face of this. And they believe the resurrection power of Jesus is available to them as a church. Because if they're threatening to put Peter and John in jail, guess what could happen to them if they keep talking about Jesus? They could get thrown in jail too. They could be crucified. They know the Romans are capable of that. And then this is what happens in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. 
When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They didn't say, and I don't mean to step on any toes, but they didn't say we should have voted differently. They didn't say, oh, if only, if only they were more friendly to us. No, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Then I'm going to skip to verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the, the, the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What were they asking for? Resurrection power in their church. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Wouldn't it be cool if that happened? It would be a little scary, but kind of cool too, right? Like if the ground just shook right now. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They went out and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the story. It's coming to a summation in Jesus. It will all be made right in him eventually. And if you want to get in on that, let me tell you about Jesus. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. I'm thankful, Father, that we managed to finish that with three minutes, just two or three minutes to spare. Um, Lord, I just want to ask this week um, that as we go through this letter that you would do a couple of things. One, I want to ask that you would just really enlighten the eyes of our minds and hearts to the, to you, the glories of who you are for us in Jesus. That's my first desire this week, Lord, is that, 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 that we will see Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus more than we did before the, the, than we did when this week started. The second thing I want to ask, Father, is that each and every one of us, after this walk through Ephesians this week, would be able to return to our own church with a different view of our local church. And that we would understand the majesty of the little community or the large community that you've put us in. And that our hearts would just be alive with the witness and the mission that you've called each of our churches to in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.